The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, July 26, 2020, on the basis of verses from Matthew chapter 13. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. So what are your thoughts on how the Overton window is looking these days? The Overton window isn't an actual window. It's not as if when you're redoing the windows on your home, you could go with Pella or you could go with Anderson or maybe you could go with Overton. No, the Overton window is a term that is used to describe the range of acceptable ideas and beliefs and opinions that exist within a society at any given moment. So if an idea falls within the Overton window, it's okay for a person to have that idea or believe that idea. If it falls outside of the Overton window, it isn't. At least according to some people in recent years, that Overton window has been dramatically shrinking or at the very least shifting in our society. Now, even if you haven't heard of the Overton window before, I'm guessing you have heard of one of its side effects, a side effect that that a lot of people say has developed in our society today, namely, cancel culture. You see, when an idea suddenly finds itself outside of the Overton window, so does a person who holds to that idea. And so if a person has a particular belief about politics or about a specific politician, about a specific social issue or religious issue, and even if just a few minutes ago that idea was not just acceptable but maybe even widespread, but now suddenly it no longer is, well, we've seen what can happen in recent weeks and months. Suddenly a virtual mob forms and they grab their virtual pitchforks and they go on social media and they not only publicly lambast that person for what they believe or have said, but then they find out where the person works and demand that that person be fired. They threaten to boycott the employer if the person isn't fired. And so that person, that professor, that politician, that author, that actor, that actress, well, they get canceled. Now, there are some people who would maybe say that all that you hear about our cancel culture is a bit overblown. Maybe they'd even argue that the presence of a a cancel culture isn't even a terrible thing. And to be fair, I'm guessing we could all think of examples where if a certain person in a certain position said the certain wrong thing, we too would expect them to lose their job over that. And yet, regardless of what you might think about the Overton window or about a cancel culture, As we look at the verses from Matthew 13 that are in front of us today, we're going to see two important things. First of all, this desire to cancel things or to cancel people is very natural for us. Whenever we see something going on in our world that we have decided is just the absolute epitome of evil, it's very natural for us not just to disagree with it, but to want to eliminate it. This desire to cancel things comes very naturally and easily to us. But secondly, we're also going to see that that desire to cancel things or cancel people is completely incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore is completely toxic to our faith as Christians. As a strategy for how to deal with evil in our world, it's actually the exact opposite of what Jesus does. 
When we see evil exist in our world, it's very easy for us to want to see Jesus just go ahead and cancel it, eliminate it. But as we look at this parable Jesus told today, we're going to see that Jesus conquers evil without canceling it. As I said, it's very natural for us to just want Jesus to eliminate the evil in our world. And so I think we can completely relate to the request that these workers brought in the parable Jesus told. These workers worked for an owner who owned a field. The owner decided to plant wheat in his field, and the wheat was growing. Good things were happening. But Jesus also tells us that an enemy of that owner went out into the same field and sowed weeds. And so when these workers saw the weeds that, was growing, that were growing right alongside the wheat, they went to the owner with this request. They said, do you want us to go and pull the weeds up? Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I've never had one of my children ask me that question about our front lawn. I, if, if I were an employer like this, this is exactly the kind of employee I would want to have, right? It seems like these are the type of people that should get a raise or at the very least a pat on the back. And their question kind of perfectly summarizes what we often experience and what we often feel in our world today. As we look out at the world around us, we know that the world, the field in which we live, belongs to Jesus. He owns it. He rules over it. We know that everything that he does is good, and yet we look around and we also see a whole lot of evil. We look around in society and we see violence and injustice and greed. We see God's universal and very natural plans for things like marriage and family, for sex and for gender, for the beginning of life and for the end of life. We see those plans all being ignored and in many cases even just trampled on. We look within the walls of the church and maybe things don't seem all that better. Among Christians, we see a lot of hypocrisy and indifference. We see people who are in positions of authority actually abusing the people they are supposed to be serving and protecting. We see all kinds of lies about God and about Jesus being spread in the name of the Bible and under the umbrella of Christianity. Even in our own lives, we can think of all kinds of examples where we've been mistreated or taken advantage of. We see all that evil, and it's very easy for us to think that Jesus is going to just deal with that evil swiftly and decisively, and maybe we're even willing to lend him a hand if he needs it. It's probably not the case that we can just pick up a hoe like these workers in the parable and eliminate that evil as easily as you would put a, pull a weed out of the dirt. But maybe we do grab for whatever it is that we do have at our disposal. Maybe we grab our, our keyboard or our phone. We go on social media and we launch into some tirade or we try and set the record straight about some issue or another. Maybe what we grab is someone's ear, and we bend that ear, we, we gossip, we go around making sure that everyone knows just how horrible so-and-so is. Whatever little slice of power, whatever tiny little platform or microphone that we do have, it's very easy for us to grab it and do everything that we can to try and eliminate whatever evil we've decided is just so bad that it cannot exist in the world that Jesus owns. And maybe we do think that we should get a raise from Jesus, or at the very least, a pat on the back. It all makes sense. It's all perfectly natural. There's just one big problem with it. 
it demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of the work that Jesus' enemy does in our world. Jesus teaches us about that work with three very important details in the parable. First of all, when the enemy does his work. He does it at night, when everyone is sleeping, at a time when it's completely undetected. Second of all, where the enemy does that work. He plants these weeds right on top of the wheat, right in the midst of it, so that the roots of weeds and wheat would actually be intertwined. And then third of all, how the enemy does that work. He plants a very specific type of weed known as darnell. And when darnell is little, it looks exactly like wheat. It's not until both plants are completely grown and when that head of grain appears that you can actually tell the difference between the two. In fact, darnell looks so much like wheat that sometimes it's actually referred to as cheat. And so for all of those reasons, that's why the master says what he says. The workers come with this request to just go out and pull up the weeds, but the master says, no, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. So because of when the enemy did the work and where he did it and how he did it, by the time the workers noticed the work of the enemy, it would have been impossible for them to go out and try and undo that work without also undoing the work of their master. And so the master says, let the weeds grow. Let evil exist. And that strategy, as surprising to us as it sounds, that strategy of permission is actually the one and only thing that salvages the work that the master had done. It's very easy and very natural for us to see the evil that exists in our world and to want Jesus to deal with it swiftly and decisively. But Jesus wants us to know, too, that very often it is impossible to undo the work of our enemy without also undoing the work of our Savior, Jesus. Here's how that might look. So Jesus teaches us that very often weeds can look exactly like wheat, and what that means is that very often wheat can look exactly like weeds. So we might see a Christian, for example, who seems like a complete and total hypocrite. I mean, sure, they come to church each and every Sunday, but we know what they're up to during the week. We see the life that they are living, and so we think we've got them all figured out. But maybe what we don't see is that beneath the surface, they are struggling with everything that they have against that particular sin. That beneath the surface, they actually hate that sin and are doing everything that they can to avoid that sin, even though those efforts are not visible to our eyes. And so if we were to just go out and cancel that Christian, we might think that we might be pulling up a weed when in reality we are uprooting wheat. Well, eventually evil becomes obvious, right? Eventually you can tell the difference between wheat and cheat. There is plenty of evil in our world about which there is no confusion and no question. So can we go out and just cancel that evil then? Well, what if we did? What if the, the Christian church turned into this tiny little brigade of soldiers who went out and fought 
in the name of all things purity and all things piety and fought against every form of evil and tried to eliminate and exclude everyone who practiced that evil. And what if those little crusades of ours were even very successful? What do you think would happen at the end of that? And I'm not talking about the, the impact we might have on the world around us, but what do you think would happen to our faith by the end of an effort like that? What do you think would be the essence of our faith at that point? The, the reason why we assume that after all the evil's been eliminating, we're still left standing tall and proud. Inevitably, we would be convinced at that point that it was because of our own goodness. In fact, that's the reason why this desire to cancel things just comes so easily to us. It's because our desire, in fact, our need to prove our goodness, to prove our worth, comes so very naturally to us. And so if someone else can get canceled and not us, better yet, if someone else can get canceled by us, well, then that just goes to show just how good we are and how good they're not. This is why Jesus tells us that it is impossible to just undo the work of his enemy without also undoing the faith that Jesus has worked in our hearts too. And so Jesus has this surprising strategy of permission. Let the weeds grow. Let evil exist. But by that permission, he salvages the work that he has done. So does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about evil or that he condones it? Or that Jesus wants us not to care about evil or even condone it? Well, all you have to do is read to the end of the parable to see that that is not at all the case. After telling the workers not to pull up the weeds, after telling them to let them grow, here's what the master goes on to say. At harvest time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. So at the harvest, when it's time to bring in the wheat, then the master will also deal swiftly and decisively with the weeds. Now, we might be tempted to think that the lesson Jesus is trying to teach us with this parable goes something like this. Sure, there's a lot of evil in our world, but unfortunately, there's really not anything he can do about it. There's not really anything we can do about it. But don't worry, in the end, it will all turn out okay. So just sit tight, just relax, just wait. Everything will be fine in the end. Almost as if this strategy is no strategy at all. Almost as if it's just helpless inaction until Jesus finally takes over in the end. That's not what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. Instead, the very thing that causes this master to allow the weeds to grow is the very thing that enables him to deal with those weeds in the end. He is able to deal appropriately with each and every weed, not in spite of the fact that he let them grow, but because of the fact that he let them grow. Had he acted too soon, not only would he have damaged wheat, but inevitably he would have missed out on some weeds. And so this strategy of permission doesn't just salvage the work that he has done, it actually, in the end, destroys the work that his enemy has done. In fact, this isn't just Jesus' strategy for dealing with evil in our day. It's actually always been his strategy all along. 
This past week, as I was studying these verses, I came across something that I thought was pretty interesting. Evidently, in Jesus' day, there was actually a Roman law on the books that addressed what would happen and how someone would be punished if they did the very thing that the enemy in this parable did. So evidently, in Jesus' day, this was something that actually happened, that people would go out into their enemy's fields and sow weeds. And evidently, it was very often done as a way of getting revenge against someone who had done harm to someone else. So it's not just that the owner in the story decides not to cancel his enemy. It's that the enemy is the one actually trying to cancel the owner. And as we think about our enemy, the devil, isn't that exactly what he has always been trying to do, to cancel, to eliminate the work that our Savior Jesus wants to do in our world? In fact, when Jesus walked this earth, the devil did everything that he could to just cancel and eliminate Jesus. He used the religious leaders of Jesus' day to try to defame him and spread all kinds of rumors about him. He took their hatred of Jesus, their envy of Jesus, and he, he combined it with the power of the political leaders and the fear and the cowardice of Jesus' own disciples, and he, he brought it all together to bring about Jesus' death. And not just any ordinary death, but the worst form of death imaginable, death on a cross. I wanted to share with you an interesting quotation from the Roman philosopher Cicero, talking about what Romans in Jesus' day would have thought about this practice of theirs of putting people to death on crosses. Cicero said this, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder, but to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. So for Cicero, the idea of taking a Roman citizen with the rights and privileges that came with that status and putting them to death on a cross, that was just unthinkable. You might even say that was outside the Overton window. But now what if you took that phrase Roman citizen and instead you substituted the pure and innocent, sinless, caring and compassionate, wise and patient, only Son of God? What word could possibly be used to describe so horrible a thought? And so how did Jesus respond to an evil such as that. Cancel it? No, he permitted it. And by that very permission, he destroyed the work of his enemy. By his willing crucifixion, he eliminated the debt of our sin. By his willing death on the cross, he broke the iron grip that death held over all mankind. By that willing crucifixion, he removed from us forever any need for us to prove our own goodness, either by, by canceling someone else or in any other way for that matter. Finally, by his willing death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, he earned for us a spot, not with our enemy in the fire, but with himself in heaven. Jesus conquered his enemy, not just without canceling him. Jesus actually conquered his enemy by not canceling him. And as hard as it is for us to sometimes watch in our world, we can be confident that that very same strategy is still going 
to work. That this strategy of permission is going to be the way in which Jesus destroys the work of our enemy in his world, in our world. Think about it. By not destroying evil, Jesus allows the difference between our enemy's work and his work to become crystal clear. He takes that work that our enemy does that he would love to keep under the cover of darkness and he forces it to come into broad daylight where we can see it. Not only that, but he allows time. Time for people who are products of the enemy's work, people who are still under his control. Time for them not just to to shape up or straighten out their lives, not just to change their behavior, but to actually repent and come to faith and become products of Jesus' work in their hearts. Finally, by being patient and granting permission for evil to exist, he ensures that when he finally does deal with evil at the harvest, when he does separate the wheat to bring it into his barn, but take the weeds and burn them in the fire, all will see and all will have to admit that what he does is in fact good and just. This strategy of permission, it doesn't just salvage the work that he has done, it also is the very thing that destroys what his enemy has done. I probably don't need to tell you this, but this is one of the more obscure and lesser-known parables that Jesus told. It's certainly not as well-known as the parable of the sower and the seed that Vicar preached on last week. It's certainly not as well-known as, as other famous parables like the one about the Good Samaritan or the one about the prodigal son. And yet, for one reason or another, it is actually the set of verses in the Bible that I have had the opportunity to preach on the most times in my ministry as a pastor. It was actually the basis for the very first sermon that I ever wrote way back when I was young, like Vicar, writing sermons at the seminary. And now this is actually the fourth time that I've had a chance to preach on this parable. And while I may not have designed it that way myself, I'm certainly glad that that's how it has worked out. Not because it is such a, a heartwarming and endearing story, but because it addresses such an important question. How does Jesus deal with evil? What is he going to do about it? and when. I know what I would do. I know what comes naturally and easily to me, but thankfully Jesus has a much better strategy. He permits it. He allows it. And by permitting it, by not canceling it, he also conquers it. Amen. Amen. 